There ends the reading, Romans 13, verses 1 through 5. Yes, I have moved ahead a few chapters. We will back up eventually in this study in the book of Romans. But I'm moving ahead because I believe that because of the unprecedented things that we're seeing in our times, it's important to hear what Paul has to say on the subject today, submission to whom? Oh, we may ask, submission to what? I recall many years ago, in the late 70s to be specific, that it was the first time in my life I had visited Washington, D.C. After arriving and getting settled in my hotel room, I went for a walk in the neighborhood where I was. I don't know, I still don't know that much about Washington, D.C., but it turned out I was very near a, a building that was most impressive. As I walked down the sidewalk, I passed this palatial-looking stone concrete mansion. It was massive with this iron gate around it. And what really caught my attention was the fact that there was a guard, an American guard, standing outside at the gate, and there was a massive antenna on top of this building. Now, this was before the days of satellite dishes. So this was a huge, like the old-style TV antennas, you know, with the rototenner where you turn that thing and it would rotate the antenna on top of your house and the antenna looked like an arrowhead, but it had metal you know, wires or spikes coming out. It was that sort of thing, but it was the size of a car. I mean, it was massive. And I saw a plaque on one of the columns, stone columns in front of the building, and it told me that this building was, in fact, the headquarters of the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C. Again, this is the late 1970s. So even though that building was situated squarely on a street in our nation's capital, it was not and it did not belong to these United States. It was not U.S. territory. It was sovereign Soviet territory. It was an outpost. It was an extension of communist power in what for them was a foreign land. In its heyday, that kind of embassy served to give tangible, visible evidence of the mission of communism to conquer and subdue the world for its Marxist philosophy. Now, of course, the Soviet Union has long since been dissolved and doesn't exist anymore, and the country we know today as Russia is not communist. But the point was, in that day and time, in the late 70s and much of the 20th century, that embassy was the exact opposite the antithesis of the Church of Jesus Christ, as was that empire. At least we can say the Church of Jesus Christ as it existed in the first several centuries of the beginning of the church. Because the early church believed, in a way perhaps that we don't anymore, in a very literal triumph of Christ over the nations of the world. For the early believers in Christ, he was literally the King of kings and Lord of lords. For them, this world was seriously seen as a realm to be conquered for the kingdom message of Christ. Now, that belief presented them with a major problem. That major problem was the government, the Roman government in particular. It also presented them with a problem with the Jewish government and any other government where Christians existed. Not that they were rebellious, as you can see, as we're going to see further, Paul does not encourage revolution or rebellion. But the point is, if Christ is king, if he is sovereign, 
and his followers are members of his royal household and kingdom, what place is there for allegiance to any other state or kingdom? And I'm going to ask you to ponder that question. What place is there, if Christ is king, for allegiance to any other state or kingdom? The words of Paul in the first five verses of Romans 13 must be read and understood in the light of those facts and that background. None of the books of the, of the New Testament were written to be textbooks of abstract, intangible, theological theories. Now, there's nothing wrong with theology. And by God's providence, many what to the average person might seem intangible abstract theological theories have been developed from the writings of Scripture, and justly so. But the point is, these texts in themselves were largely written to answer specific questions and address real-life, down-on-the-ground problems in the early church. And so, when we read Romans 13, it is easy to extract from what he's writing here the questions that had arisen and prompted his words, his remarks. For example, the question, is it right for us to be obedient to any ungodly government leaders now that Christ is truly king? Are we not disobeying Christ if we obey ungodly government officials? Those people had to wrestle with those issues in that time. Those questions are all set with the background of how political and government leaders, well, in the nation of Israel, did their work. I mean, whatever their failings... In Israel, the leaders of the nation were men who were seen to be as much ministers of God as of the state. But Roman leaders and Roman government officials were pagan idol worshippers who denied the true God of the Bible. And in light of that, faithful, dedicated Christians, they wanted to know, indeed they needed to know, is it or is it not a compromise, say, for me to pay my taxes or to obey the laws and government leaders of Rome or even of corrupt Israel. Over the years, Paul's words in these verses of Romans 13 have been badly misunderstood because no account has been made of their original context. I know, I know, everybody, every pastor, every teacher of the Bible, they're going to tell you the importance of contact, of getting the context right and, you know... A, A text without a context is a pretext and all that other nonsense. But I can tell you, even people who ought to know better get this wrong at some amazing points. You know, most of you know, a few weeks ago, I was out sick. And during that time, I um, had the opportunity to watch a live stream church service of a church in this area. It's a Presbyterian church. I won't say any more than that. The pastor is someone I know and was well-respected, and rightfully so. But he happened to be expounding this text. And no, 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 that's not the reason I'm doing this today. But I was amazed at how he got it wrong in some areas here. Now, you say just to disagree with you, pastor, that means he got it wrong? Well, in this case, yes, that's what I'm saying. Because it's not me, technically, that the disagreement was with. It's with the Apostle Paul and what he's clearly said and what he's dealing with and what the Christians were dealing with in that time. 
And so today, let us make a good faith effort to understand these words and to therefore see what advice we can take from them for our day and time. And after all, this is what this is all about. I don't think this message would be any less relevant if this happened to be 1953 instead of 2023. But I think most of you will agree with me. The issues before us as it relates to what Paul has said are coming into and have come into very sharp focus indeed in these past several years. Well, the first thing that we take away from these verses is that we are to submit to all higher powers. That's the first point. Submit to all higher authorities. That's obvious in verse 1. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authority. And this exhortation by Paul to all Christians is a religious principle. It's not a political one. It's required by God. So this is based on theology, not politics. It is required by God because he is the source of all power and authority in this world. But notice, however, that the verses don't end with what I just read. He goes on to say, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. All authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So therefore, for us, whether we're talking about our governor, Henry McMaster, or our president, whether it be Trump or Biden or Reagan or anybody else, this text means that our obedience to any human authority is preempted by God's prior authority. God has indeed instituted human authority in this world. And the Bible specifically mentions the authority of parents and elders and pastors in the church and employers and husbands. And what Paul is saying here is that all those offices and positions, all of them, it's not the individual who may occupy them, but the office that's reflective of the higher authority. Of God. But then, secondly, we are to submit for conscience' sake. We submit to higher authority because it is reflective of God's authority. God instituted it. And then we submit for conscience' sake. He says in verse 5 Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. He says that we have this attitude of obedience to higher authority because we want to have a clear conscience about this business. And Paul means the status of our conscience in terms of our relationship to God. Not in terms of the, the governor or the president or the school board chairman. Maybe this is a good place to mention a quote I came across from the pagan philosopher Plato. A man who has had immense impact and influence across the spectrum of human history. He may be a pagan, but you know the old saying, a broken clock is right twice a day. And I think Plato hit the nail on the head with this one. He said, the penalty that good people pay for not being interested in politics is to be governed by people worse than themselves. You may have to obey an ungodly ruler that is in a position of legitimate authority who may be personally ungodly, but you obey them not because the state demands it or requires your obedience, but because God requires it. And as with the first point, so with the second. Our submission is based on theology, 
religious conviction and not politics. Thirdly, those in authority are ministers and servants of God Almighty. I mean the God of the Bible. Look again at what he says in verse 1. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted, that is, put in place by God. So here, at this point, is where the picture becomes more clearly focused. Because too often this chapter has been co-opted by those who have an agenda to prop up corrupt and evil government power. And such people would like nothing more than for you to believe that if the president or the governor or the mayor tells you that 2 plus 2 equals 7, then you have to believe that. I can't help but digress here a moment and mention one of the most riveting stories or parts of the now prescient night, uh, novel 1984 by George Orwell, you know, where he wrote this, I think, back in the 40s or 50s, and he predicted the coming of a tyrannical, evil, one-world state where everybody was like a drone. You, you were like ants in, a, in, a, in an ant mound. People had no freedom. And one of the great scenes is where a man who was a torturer, he was torturing a guy who was beginning to rebel from the government authority a little bit, and, he, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically told the man, we want to get you to the place where we tell you that 2 plus 2 equals 5 and you believe it. You really believe it because we've told you that. But no, no, that's not what scripture is talking about here. You don't believe that. And verse 1 makes it clear why not. Since positions of presidents and governors and parents and pastors are ordained by God, people in those positions are themselves no less accountable to God than you are. As a matter of fact, according to God's word in the book of James, we're told that those in such positions, or similar ones, are in some sense more accountable to God than you are, or than I am. Well, maybe not me. I'm not off the hook in this case. James chapter 3, verse 1, he, he writes, Dear brothers, not many of you should become teachers or masters, for we who teach will be judged more strictly, judged more severely. But then fourthly, what does Paul say is the specific duty of those in authority? We know what our duty is. We're to submit to all authority. But what about those in authority? Does that mean they don't have to worry about submitting to anybody? Well, we already know they're accountable to God Almighty because he's the one that instituted their office. But look again at verse 3. Paul says this, For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Now, I think that ESV translation is close enough to the older authorized King James Version to perhaps not be as clear as it could be. So, here is another translation. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Will you do what is right, and they will honor you. So Paul is speaking more generally of governing authorities what we would think of as governors, as congressmen, mayors, and senators, police chiefs, or whatever, God uses Paul to lay out clearly the duties and the responsibilities of those who are citizens and residents in the places where such leaders have their authority. But, 
Oh yes, there's always a caveat. And this is a big one. God also uses Paul to spell out the duties of the rulers. Their job is to corral evil, to round up wicked men, and maintain justice in society. However, here's another caveat. Here's another warning. Here's another buyer beware. Right away, we're confronted with another issue. That the responsibility of those in authority is to be a terror to evil, as the older language says. That is, to corral evil and round up wicked men and maintain justice in society. Well, right away, we've got a big, big question. Whose justice are the government leaders supposed to uphold? Whose definitions of evil and wickedness are they supposed to be working from? Well, I hope you see that the answers to those questions are self-evident. Our presidents, our governors, our politicians are to establish justice and punish evil, but only in terms of biblical law, the moral ethical code of the Ten Commandments of the Bible. So both the people and the government leaders are in a position and posture of submission to God's higher authority and what his law requires. Now, what is most interesting about all of this is that even some non-Christians, even those far outside the Christian biblical moral and religious tradition, maintain and keep God's standards of justice to some extent. And Paul has already spoken about this. And I think it's important enough that you, you see this for yourself. Keep your place here in Romans 13 and just turn back a few chapters to Romans chapter 2. It's on page 1117 of the Pew Bible. 1117 of the Pew Bible, Romans 2, and look at verses 14 and 15. I'm going to read it here. He says, for when Gentiles, and we can understand that to mean pagans, non-believers, non-Christians. For when Gentiles who do not have the law of God by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the biblical law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. All right, you might think, well, what, okay, what, what does that mean? What it means is this. Even if we have a governor or a president or a police chief or a mayor who is an atheist, we are still required to obey God's law. That is, however, as long as those leaders are doing their jobs in being a terror to evil and maintaining justice in society, according to Bible standards. And so, what are we supposed to do if we find ourselves, as those early Christians did, in a place where the politicians and the government leaders do not maintain biblical justice? Where they are hostile to God's law, and they seek to obstruct it and even destroy it. Well, you know, fortunately, we don't have to speculate about that. We don't have to ask the, uh, uh, the pop evangelical Bible teacher of the day or whoever you watch on TV on Sunday evenings or whatever to get the official opinion because God's Word has already given us the answer to that question. Well, the authorities are hostile to God's law and are, and are attempting to obstruct it and destroy it. Acts 5.29, but Peter and the apostles replied to the authorities, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Obedience to God, he said, comes before obedience to men. I've said many times 
quoting, in fact, Dr. Rushdoony, God's word is a total word. We don't just take little snippets from Romans 13 and isolate it from everything else. If you did that, you might come up with some sort of mindless 1984, yes, Mr. President, yes, Mr. Governor, if you tell me 2 plus 2 equals 7, I'll believe it. But if you're reading the Bible as the whole word of God, you can't possibly come up with something like that because Peter says, no, obedience to God comes before obedience to men. When the state or federal governments themselves become a terror to good works, in other words, if the government becomes such that those who are living lives obeying God's laws as summarized in the Ten Commandments, when they are the ones who live in fear of the government because of their obedience to God, then at that point, it ceases to merit our obedience, the government. And you may be thinking, did, did the pastor really say that? I'm just telling you what Peter told the governing authorities in his day. I'm just telling you what Scripture enjoins upon us if we claim that Christ is king and sovereign. And that, therefore, leads me to the fifth point. And that is, there is a theology of the state. In other words... <clears throat> Any human institution, anything in life, there is a theology behind it. I mean, we could say a belief system, a worldview behind it. And because there is a theology of the state, any citizen, as much as any church member or pastor or elder or political or civil leader, have a duty to serve and obey the God of the Bible. The state is no more exempt from the judgment and law of God than any individual person is exempt. Yes, we as Christians should follow the legal authority of the government, even when that government is not Christian. But you must also recognize that God Almighty sees that senator, sees that congressman, that president, that governor, that state power as his ministry. The state does not exist as a welfare agency for either the politicians or for the people. According to the Bible, the state is a ministry of God, and therefore its primary duty is to serve and obey him. Now, on a human level, government power can look to be all-powerful, almost divine, godlike. Try to imagine if you had been a Christian in those earliest days, living in some, some part of the Roman Empire, whether it be in Rome itself, or Antioch, or even Jerusalem. And all around you, you are surrounded by the images and the blood and iron of absolute Roman control and authority. But the true God of this world has a way of reminding people in authority who is really in charge. Unfortunately, many governing officials in these United States long ago forgot who their boss really is. And I don't mean long ago in terms of when the last Democrat was elected president. No, this goes all the way back to the founding of this nation. Today we find ourselves at a place in history, as I've already said, unlike any other in our time. And I don't say that lightly. I'm not saying that because I'm watching too much of the national news. Um, I think that most of you as of my age or older would agree with me. There's nothing like what we're seeing today ever in our lifetimes or really any other lifetime in this country. We are at a point where state and federal authority sees itself as godlike, as divine, as all-powerful, and by their definition, all good. And in the almost 300 years 
of our nation's founding, there is no precedent for the things that we are witnessing in these days. And I'm not going to run down the laundry list. I've mentioned these things from the pulpit before. Well, maybe I'll just mention one as an example. Children being taught that even though they're born a girl or a boy, they can change that. And their parents encourage them to try to figure out what they are, even though their bodies and their inner workings tell them they're created in God's image, male and female. He created them. Can can anybody conceive or imagine anything like this ever, anywhere? But guess what? There are indeed models in the 2,000 years of church history, models that we can go by, The early churches resisted the Roman government's attempts to license and control the church in the name of the lordship of Christ. You see, the Romans, they didn't care if the Christians got together, but they had to be registered. They had to be authorized. They had to be licensed. And there were certain other things they had to do. Offer the annual sacrifice to the statue of Caesar in Rome or wherever they lived. But the Christians said no. We recognize you have a certain amount of jurisdiction in this world. But you do not have jurisdiction over the church of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, you don't have jurisdiction really over anything because Christ is king. The Messiah is king and ruler over all things, including you, the state. My friends, it is total blasphemy for the state to seek to control and regulate the body of Christ. Do I have to remind anyone here? that we've lived through it just in the past several years. Fortunately, we here in South Carolina, it wasn't as bad as in some other places. But in some other states, in some other countries, governments telling churches, you will not only shut down, but when we do allow you to start worshiping again, you must sit six feet apart, you must wear a mask, you must do all of these crazy things. And you will not have communion, you will not sing hymns. Imagine, that's, that's just as inconceivable as little boys and girls being told they're not really little boys or girls. Remember the story I told you at the beginning about my having seen the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C. My friends, the church is God's embassy on earth. According to conscience and according to God's law, Jesus is king and ruler of the nations and he is the lawgiver. The earliest followers of Jesus found no moral or theological ground for the church to be in submission to the state. And my friends, we have no such grounds today either as we have outlined this. Our Lord Jesus Christ recognized both the legitimate existence of state authority and also the problem of demonic lust for power and corruption. I want to read you. The words of Jesus himself. In Luke 22, he said this. Luke 22, beginning at verse 25. The, king of the, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines or sits at the table, or the one who serves the table? Is it not the one who sits at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. 
you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Christ called his disciples and appointed unto them a kingdom. Let me just digress again and say the currently popular fad in some reform circles of two-kingdom theology is utter nonsense. Christ himself understood quite well that his kingdom will not coincide with the kingdom of Satan. One will be displaced and destroyed. There's nothing here in what he said, in what Paul has written, that even remotely suggests that these men had a duty to surrender Christ's kingdom to Caesar. According to God's law, non-covenant men must not become leaders with governing power. Now, obviously, we live in a fallen world, and God certainly anticipated that. And as you heard in our reading today from Deuteronomy chapter 28, there is a penalty for breaking the covenant, and that penalty is to become ruled, governed by evil men. The prophet Isaiah warned the people of Israel in his day, if God's people turn leadership over to ungodly men, you end up precisely where we, friends, are today. And as we see today, civil government ceases to be God's minister and becomes God's wrath to others and to itself. It becomes a terror to the godly and it seeks to protect evil men. I don't think I have to outline any examples of the latter. Hopefully not. But what is very interesting and gripping, frankly, is that our founders, the founding fathers of these United States, they understood that. I mentioned a, a, a week or so ago that in the deep dive that this man did about the, the, the influence of the Bible in the lives and the writings of the, and the thinking of the founding fathers, because of computer technology, he had the ability to survey all of the extant writings of the founders of these United States. Popular men like Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and, and a host of others that are less well-known. Political treatises, articles they published about the, the birth of our nation, about attacking England and the unjust tyranny of that country over us. And what he found was this. Out of all of the writings that those men relied on and quoted most often, it was the book of Deuteronomy that predominated in their writings. And so consequently, they understood, and that is why in the original 13 colonies, any man not a Christian was ineligible to hold political office. Let me say that again. If you were, and in some states, their constitutions, the state of North Carolina, South Carolina, Delaware, uh, Georgia, a few others, New York, I don't know about New York, Pennsylvania. If you were not a Protestant Christian, if you were not someone who believed in God and affirmed the Trinity, you could not be elected to political office. In some places, you couldn't vote if you were not a Christian. Friends, every society and its various errors of errors areas, excuse me, not errors, but er areas of government, every society reflects the nature and the character of the people who make it up, who populate it. A society made up of evil and reprobate men will reflect their character. Let's get back to the degenerate society we see today. I'm sure most of you have seen the videos of the drag queen story hours where these men dressing up 
as women parade themselves around in front of children at public libraries. But do you understand what is most disturbing to me, apart from the obvious, is the number of mothers, primarily, parents, who bring their children to these things. The children aren't just showing up there on their own. Let me say it again. Every society, every culture, and its various areas of government reflects the nature and character of the people in it. A society made up of evil men and women will reflect that character. Now, in terms of these early Christians, the the homosexual and degenerate nature of Roman government leadership was already showing up in Paul's day. It had been there all along. But with an increasing succession of degenerate evil emperors like Nero, like Caligula, it was very obvious. So the question I have to ask all of us is when will we finally admit that no man or woman without Christ can create and govern a just moral society? Do you know what Jesus called the realm of ungodly political power? He called it the reign of darkness. And the commission of Christ to all his followers was and remains this. That reign of darkness must come to an end. He has already destroyed it on the cross. But the realms of darkness must in this world give way to the light of the kingdom message. And by God's grace, we need to make that stand in our own lives in our families, in our church. Let us pray.